0: Good morning. Um, As uh, Brad introduced me, uh, my name's Zach. I'm uh, one of the community group leaders here at uh, Phoenix Bible Church, kind of help oversee some of the community group stuff as well. Um, I had a seminary professor once tell me that the Apostle Paul looked like George Costanza, so I don't know how to take Brad's uh, (laughs) description of me as looking like Paul. So, um... So, um... Yeah, with that, I don't know how to take that, but thanks. Um, so yeah, uh, I get to uh, talk about grace in the, uh, in the life of Paul, and so uh, we're going to jump kind of all over the place with scripture today. Probably the primary place we'll hang out is Ephesians 2. Uh, you can go ahead and flip there, and while you're doing that, I'll uh, pray. Father, thank you just for the opportunity uh, to open up your word and to study your word. And... Um, what a timely uh, subject to talk about, uh, talking about grace and talking about the grace we've received from you. I just uh, pray that uh, the change in my heart that you've made this week, God, that, that you move in other people's hearts and uh, convict them of areas of sin and areas where they uh, maybe don't fully understand the weight of your grace, and that uh, today you would be glorified uh, through, through the words that I'm speaking. In Jesus' name, Amen. That's my daughter, perfect timing. Uh, So, uh, in the late 18th century, it was pretty common uh, for men to end up uh, at some sort of service on a ship. Most of them were kind of compulsed into that, into like the Royal Navy, and then they would uh, go on into this profession that's a pretty kind of debased and uh, debaucherous profession of, of just sailing and going port to port without kind of a any sort of anchor in your life. Um, And so a lot of these guys, when they would uh, kind of finish their term with the Royal Navy, would actually end up uh, working on slave ships, slave trade ships. And so um, there was one such guy, his name was John, who kind of took that path. He was basically drafted into the Royal Navy, served in the Royal Navy, eventually found himself working on a slave ship. In his... uh, just kind of rebellious life, actually found himself at one point, uh, being owned by another slave ship owner, found himself a slave himself, eventually uh, became the owner of a slave ship. And uh, through just God's providence and God's uh, uh, sovereignty, he came across some Christian reading materials, and one night was caught in the huge storm and cried out to God and was converted. Um, he grew he became a really significant figure in American church history. Um, he wrote uh, these words, um, here, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Um, it was John Owen. John Owen was at one point a uh, owner of a slave ship and ended up penning one of probably our most beloved Uh, hymns. I mean, so much so, uh, fortunately, I didn't sing it for you guys today, but I mean, this week we saw our president break out singing this, doing a eulogy. Um, Americans love this hymn, even ones who are marginally Christian, aren't Christian, love this hymn. And so, today we're going to talk about that topic, that idea of grace. We're going to look at Paul's life. Um, I mentioned yesterday on Facebook you might have wanted to pack a lunch. I could probably go three hours with this, Paul. Uh, that's his whole thing is grace. So don't worry, I'm not. Tim will tackle me long before I get to three hours. Um, but why is this topic kind of something that we kind of latch onto so much here? But I think at the same time, Christians love that word grace, but I think we lose the weight of it, or we maybe don't totally understand the meaning of it because we use it so much. We sing it, in all these. I mean, we sang a song today that had grace in it we kind of use it all the time. Um, we use it as a name. My daughter's name is Evelyn Grace. Um, it's this word that's kind of like just flooded into our Christian culture, but it's a word that maybe we don't totally get the weight of. And so um, for, for today, just for kind of our, our working definition of it today, I kind of boiled it down to this, that grace is the unmerited, spontaneous love of God for sinful man. And so that's kind of when we talk about grace, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about an unmerited, and spontaneous love of sinful man from God. So that means we haven't earned it, and that there's nothing that caused God to do it other than himself. That's the idea of spontaneous. Um, so the question is, why Paul? Why is Paul the person that we tie to grace? Well, the the Greek word for grace is charis. Um, so if you ever meet someone who named their kid charis, you know they went to seminary. They're a theolo- the theological nurse. Um, But that word, Paul uses that word 101 times in his writing. Um, His traveling companion, uh, and who was also his doctor, his name's Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, uses that word uh, 23 times. And then the rest of the New Testament only uses that word uh, 28 times total. So that's why Paul is tied to this idea of grace. Paul just saturates his writing with this idea of grace. And the question is, why is this idea of grace so prominent in Paul's writing? And I think it's because Paul experienced God's grace in such a different and profound, unique way than the rest of the apostles. The rest of the people that wrote scripture for us um, experienced Jesus' grace and experienced God's grace, but Paul just experienced it in this, a very unique way. Um, and I think that's why you see it come, uh, come so strongly in his writing. Before we get to kind of that change and that, that experience of grace, um, I kind of want to look a little bit at what Paul's life was before conversion. So depending on your point of view, we kind of look at uh, Paul or Saul, as he was kind of known before Jesus, as this like bad guy, this really bad dude. Um, little biographical information on him. He was born in Tarsus, which is a major uh, educational hub. It actually had a university that was more prominent than anyone that would be found in Greece or in Rome at the time. Uh, so he comes from a, a well-educated, prominent town. Um, he was, uh, by his own description, a, a pure Hebrew. He was part of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel. Um, no, His family was all Jewish ancestry all the way through. He was a, a pupil of a guy named Gamaliel. Um, is a big deal in rabbinical Jewish history. He's this very, very important and prominent figure in that. The only way I could probably maybe try to describe it is if you went and studied evangelism under Billy Graham today. And even then, I don't think it totally grasps how important Gamaliel was, but it's probably the only common thing that we have is that you go and learn how to share the gospel from a guy like Billy Graham, who that's just clearly his, his gifting and what God's gifted him to do. Um, Paul was likely a member of the Sanhedrin, which is uh, kind of like a Jewish supreme court they, they worked in Jerusalem. They ruled. Um, they made rulings on uh, Scripture. They basically interpreted Scripture with new problems that came up. Um, they also were part of the political establishment. They were kind of well interconnected with Rome. Uh, so they were, they were in a powerful, prominent, well-respected uh, by some place. And then Paul was a zealous defender of the Orthodox uh, Judaism. He fought against heresy strongly, and that's where we kind of see him come into the story of, of the early church, is he's actually defending what he believes is the orthodox faith, what he understands to be the true faith of Scripture when he reads Scripture. And so the story kind of picks up uh, of Paul in Acts at the end of chapter 7. Um, you, don't to, you don't need to flip there if you have a phone and you can get there quick, great. But uh, Acts chapter 7, the beginning of it, is uh, talking about the martyrdom of uh, Stephen. And so Stephen, one of the early deacons of the church, is pulled before the Sanhedrin. He basically proclaims, the gospel proclaims Jesus as Messiah in the Sanhedrin. Um, Basically it says in uh, verse 57 of chapter 7, it says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So they basically shouted him down, plugged their ears and charged him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is significant because the Sanhedrin didn't actually have authority through Rome to do that without Rome's permission. So this may have been a little bit of the Sanhedrin and a little bit of just mob mentality. Um, If you remember, even in uh, the trial of Jesus, it goes back and forth between the Jewish authority and Pontius Pilate and Herod, these different people, and they're basically trying to get permission from Rome to crucify Jesus. In this case, they don't even take time to go do that. So this mob mentality comes out, stones him, and it says, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And basically what that's saying is that Saul's the one that approved this, Saul's the one that kind of led this, and um, basically authorized this stoning, saying that it was, it was good and just and right. Uh, chapter 8 continues, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. And then it goes through a little bit more story of the church, and it picks up in uh, chapter 9. says, so chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul's not even content with kind of pushing this idea of what he sees as a heretical sect of Judaism out of Jerusalem. He's now going to the high priest to get permission, basically warrants, to go to these other towns, drag people out of their homes, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to face Basically a trial of their heresy where if they don't recant or they don't uh, reject Jesus the Messiah, they would be facing the same uh, fate as Stephen, the same execution as Stephen. And so for us as Christians, in our perspective, when we read that story looking back, Saul was a really bad guy. We're like, bad dude. Killing Christians, fighting Jesus, bad guy. In Saul's context, he was a really good dude. He was trying to Faithfully follow the law of Moses. He was trying to defend the, the faith against heresy. He clearly was missing a huge section of that in understanding Jesus as the Messiah, but he was doing a religious, pious duty. He was, he was not doing this out of kind of anger or deceit, he was doing it out of deception, of being deceived and being pious. And so Paul's kind of this interesting guy, because in some sense, what he was doing are these really evil, terrible works, and a lot of the time we talk about grace, we think about that of like, wow, look at the amazing grace God has on that person who did all those terrible things, and God saved them still. And we tend to miss, wow, look at that person who did all those great works, and was very self-righteous, and thought that they were very pious and good, and God saved them too. And so Paul can kind of argue both sides of this as he goes throughout Scripture. And so the question is, how does a guy who's essentially a religious terrorist become the guy who writes that he is the chief of sinners and that all of his own righteousness, his self-righteousness, is garbage? He basically recognizes that in his encounter with Jesus that happens in Acts 29, where he's on the way to go capture Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, and Jesus just shows up, knocks him down, blinds him, and basically tells him, stop persecuting my church, and uh, Saul gets the message, loud and clear. He goes to Damascus, and rather than going to Damascus to continue to persecute the church, he goes to the synagogue and starts preaching the gospel, starts preaching about Jesus. Um, Paul realizes that what he had done, both evil and in some ways righteous, had nothing to do with why Jesus saved him. And you see that through his writings, and so that's what we're gonna pick up in Ephesians 2. Um, Some of you, this might be a really familiar passage. You might be like, yeah, I got this, I know. That's, I think, sometimes the problem. We read passages like Ephesians 2 and we're like, oh, we got it. I know, I get this. I could recite it for you. I get the deal. That's when we start to lose the understanding and the weight of what God's done for us. So let's go ahead and go through this here. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul's writing to Christians, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, he's saying, you were dead, you, you were dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind whether someone has full-on embraced sin or they've deceived themselves with some sort of self-righteousness, when we're left on our own, we're not good. We're all this, this section. At some point, all of us, regardless of what your testimony is, whether you're the person that grew up in church from an early age and knew Jesus from an early age to the person that has just met Jesus last week and lived an amazing, crazy life of sin, we all at some point were dead in our trespasses, regardless of all the good works we've done, all the bad things we've done, we're all dead. Pastor Tim said it before, dead's dead, just some of us smell better. And the idea that we kind of use this idea of, of we're floating in an ocean, struggling, and Jesus pulls us out, but actually the reality is that we're dead and we're sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Jesus raises us up, back, brings us back to life. Paul, himself, Paul includes himself in this. Uh, as you see, he, he talks about we. He includes himself in this idea of Uh, people who were dead, even with all of his religious zealousness, he now understands that he was just a striving dead man, that he wasn't able to accomplish anything. Let's go to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So despite everything that, that you've done, despite being completely dead in sin, Paul says here, salvation only comes because of the grace of God. Only because of that unmerited, undeserved love of God, you you become alive again. Jesus brings you back to life. He takes you out of the, out of your sin and brings you back to life. It says and continues on in verse uh, six, and raised him up and seated him with, excuse me, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, kindness, and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so for many of us, we might get the idea of our self-righteousness before Christ didn't gain us anything or that no matter how bad we were before Christ, Jesus can save us. But I think when we get to that point of salvation, we forget that grace continues, that we continue to need grace. And so we either forget and don't and don't be appreciative of, of the grace that God's given us, or the flip side of that is that we feel like now that we've been given grace once, we have to do something now to keep it or to earn it. And you see here, Paul's talking about these good works. but so He's talking about these are good works that we're created to do to glorify God. It's not you have been saved by grace through faith so that you can do works to stay in God's good grace. That's not what he's talking about here. So often, I think many of us, because we feel this great weight of this uh, gift that we've been given, we then feel like we have to try to do something to earn it after the fact. As if that, now that we have this knowledge of grace, that there's something we actually could do to earn it, even though before, when we were dead in Christ, or dead in our own sin, we couldn't figure that out. And so really, kind of what I want to talk about today is just this idea of of understanding how heavy grace is, how great a weight grace is for us, um, I know for me, my my personal bent, my personal struggle is to be that person that feels like I have to try to continue to earn grace, um, that that I get that the, that initial gift was free from God, but if I'm not like doing things that God's going to be upset with me and that maybe at some point I'm going to find a, a, a limit of that grace and God's going to be like, all right, you're done. So like that I have to like kind of keep my ledger on the positive side as much as I can so that when I do mess up, I don't find myself getting kicked out of the family. Um, but that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Um, the fact is, is that, that Jesus' grace, once it's given to you, it's a, it's a gift. It's given to you by the sovereign God. It's given to you by someone who has the complete ability, yes, to choose who he gives grace to, and no one's going to take that away from you, even yourself. Now, that doesn't mean we get to continue living on in sin. Paul writes in Romans, you know, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? The idea isn't that, well, since you can't lose it, go crazy. The idea is that we've been created for good works so that we glorify God. That's what Paul's talking about here in the end of this passage. When we live in obedience to Christ, we actually glorify God and other people see his grace and action through our life. Um, If you know Christ, some of the lies that you might buy into is one that you couldn't possibly be loved by God. Look what you've done in the past. That's one a lot of people sometimes struggle with, especially um, maybe right at the point of, of when conversion, things like that. You just had this strong belief that you couldn't possibly be loved by God. You have people tell you, well, yeah, look at all the things you've done. Look at all the stuff you've done. I think that's part of why we see Paul's life in Scripture. I mean, Paul was Isis to the early church. Like, he was a terrorist. He murdered Christians because they loved Jesus. And Jesus used him to write Scripture, to write the Bible. I think that's why when Paul writes in 1 Timothy that he's the chief of sinners, you have to remember that Scripture's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes, I'm the chief of sinners, the Holy Spirit's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you are. Um, (laughs) We see these examples of Paul. We also see these examples of Paul being sustained by grace. Rather than being beaten down by what he'd done in the past, he can both talk to what his sins were but also his righteousness. He talks about uh, in Philippians how he he basically gives us like resume of like here's how awesome of an Israelite I am like I'm in the right family I uh, studied under the right person I obeyed all the laws I did all these great things and none of it matters at all and I trade all of that away just for the, the glory and the, the joy of knowing Christ <laughs> So for those of us that, that kind of have grown up that life of like we're moderately good people, we try to do the right things, we need to remember when we come to Christ, we're not in some like second level, like we're not like one and then there's 1A Christians who are like the crazy sinful people. We're like, yeah, those people that like have the really, like the testimonies we like to hear about, we're like, that's awesome, we love those stories, but they're like level two Christians because I was in church my whole life. We're, we're all in the same place. We're all dead in sin. We all need Christ. So we can't possibly buy into that lie that anything that we've done before Jesus, whether good or bad, affects our grace at all. Secondly, um, I kind of mentioned this. We don't have to do anything to keep grace. Obedience isn't, an, isn't something that we do so that we can continue to stay in God's favor, so we can continue to be loved by God. Obedience is just the natural response of, of the grace that we've been given. God saved you from nothing that you did of your own. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. He knows how everything's going to turn out from beginning to end of history. What other response do you have than to be obedient and to read his word and, and study and grow and love him and be obedient. It's not a matter of making Jesus happier with you. It's just the normal, sane thing to do. I think sometimes we turn obedience into this terrible, like, heavy weight because we forget about grace. We forget about the fact that we are already saved, that obedience doesn't have anything to do with our continued salvation. It's just the normal response of what you should do. You know, when when kids... When, when they grow up and start to understand this, like, when I got older, and I look back at the times where I rebelled against my parents, like, that, they were, it was stupid. Like, my parents knew what they were talking about, and I, re, I, I rebelled against them, but that was a, that was a dumb situ- situation, that was a dumb decision, that, that was just completely insane, and in the same way, when we rebel against God and when we fight back against what God's uh, told us in Scripture, whether it's based off our own emotions and not being quite sure about how we feel about things or whether it's just out of, you know, ignorance, it's, it's not anything more than just, than just being, having a bad decision, making a, making a stupid decision based off of the facts that we've been saved. Another way that we might uh, kind of lose grace is that um, we look at those who are currently the sons of obedience that that uh, Paul talks about uh, the people who maybe haven't uh, shown any conversion yet haven't don't seem to be showing any signs of grace that somehow they're worse than us um, and I don't need to stretch real far for an illustration of this if you have Facebook this week, you know what this looks like um, there's there is this balance of, like, yes, sin is sin, but at the same time, we were just as dead and lost as, as any of those people that we see on our Facebook touting, um, you know, celebrating uh, decisions that have been, you know, that are against what Scripture states, things that we see this, this week just in our culture. Um... To, to choose one sin and point it out and use that as like, oh man, those people are so terrible, they're a mess, is to forget the grace that we have. I mean, it may not be that specific sin, but when I see people on TV and they're celebrating uh, this basic legalization of, of sinful behavior, my response should be, that's exactly where I would be if it weren't for Jesus. It may not be that specific sin, but I would be reveling in my sin. I would be like a pig in mud, rolling around, enjoying my sin, having no idea that I was even in sin. And so our response shouldn't be to be judgmental or feel superior or anything, but to feel sorrow. When you come across people who are lost in sin, feel sorrow, feel the weight of their sin, and understand that they're not beyond God's grace. You know, remember stories like Paul. Remember stories of people who you read in the Bible and you're like, that person was crazy. David stole someone's wife, had the husband murdered, and God still used him. God still showed grace on him. You know, Moses ran from, the, <laughs> from obedience all the time. He murdered a guy too. Um, and God still used him. We're not any better than the people who haven't found faith in Jesus yet. We're not any more superior or anything beyond the fact that we've just been given a gift that we don't deserve and that we have um, no right to earn. There's nothing we can do to have that. And so I just want us to think about that, think about grace before you interact with people, whether it's on the current issues of the day or whether it's something um, else that you see. I mean, Facebook's just like a landmine of places where you could, I mean, if you wanted to argue with every person that celebrated sin on Facebook, you, yeah, you would have to go see a therapist for, like, Facebook addiction. You'd be spending so much time on it. Um, the other thing is for some people in the room you might be hearing all this and thinking, yeah, that's great. I get that idea of grace, but like, you don't really know what I've done. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's grace. You're right. You don't. I don't. No one does. There's nothing that we do that that deserves God's grace. The only thing that that gives us God's grace is that he chooses to give it to us. So if you're have felt this like drawing to Jesus. If you've been coming here for a while, you've been hearing the sermons, you're attracted to this idea of Jesus. You feel like Jesus is kind of drawing you to him, but you're just thinking, yeah, but I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be part of that family. I don't deserve that kind of grace that, that I hear you talk about. I don't deserve being a part of a, a family that, that's gonna help me grow and love uh, the Father more. You're right, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to do that. If Jesus is drawing you, it's because he's chosen to give you that gift of grace. And you need to just quit fighting that. Like, just feel the weight of it. Feel the weight of the the gift that you've been given. Don't fight against that. And so, kind of with that, I'm short today, I know that. Part of the reason that that I'm short is I want to just spend some time today in prayer. Um, just take some time out of our out of our service here before we do communion, before we do worship, those kind of things. Um, the band's going to come up and they're going to play a little music behind while we're praying. But if you're one of if you're a person who feels like Jesus has been drawing you, but you don't feel like you can accept that idea that you deserve anything, start talking to Jesus. Start praying now. It's all prayer. It's, it's just talking to Jesus. If you're someone who um, Maybe still feels the weight of of what they've done in the past. That like somehow that it keeps you from being all that God's called you to be. Um, repent of that, you know. Repent of the sins that you've you've caused. But also understand that Jesus's grace is sufficient to sustain you through that. It's sufficient to forgive sin. Uh, if you're someone that's more like me, that that you find yourself um, unsure if if you can keep going, if you're kind of lost at where you're at, you know. Pray and and, and ask God. Paul talks about that that Jesus' grace is sufficient to carry you. In our weakness is where Jesus becomes most strong. It's where we see the strongest uh, aspects of God is in the spots where we're the weakest because that's where God carries you through. So pray about that. Think about things that maybe you're trying to do to earn or keep God's favor. Repent of those. Even if they're good things, repent of them. And just ponder this idea of of grace, this free gift that we have, this ability um, that we have to approach the Father, and it's only because of what what God's done for us. We're going to take some time, pray, pray with your family, pray with friends, if someone brought you today, pray with them, um, and just spend some time thinking uh, through this, and and asking God to kind of expose areas where maybe you don't understand or uh, embrace the full weight of the grace that's been given to you, and then um, We'll continue in worship after that. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that we can't earn it, that we can't mess it up, that we um, are part of your family because you chose for us to be part of your family. Um, Forgive us when we forget that, when we um, either embrace sin and um, forget who we are and, the, the, and forget the, the weight and the cost of the gift that's been given to us, or when we try to somehow make ourselves more uh, loved in your eyes by trying to, to use good works as something um, to glorify ourselves rather than you. us just to be daily reminded of um, the weight of the gift that we've been given. In Jesus' name, amen.